Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first joining us is Sam Bendet of the Center for Naval Analyses. He is among the world's top analysts on the Russian military and unmanned systems in general, particularly Moscow. Uh, Moscow's, and he is one of uh, the crack Russia team uh, over at CNA, uh, one of the nation's leading federally funded research and development uh, agencies. He is also a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Sam, welcome back and hope you and yours had great holidays. Thanks so much, Vago. Great to be back. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. Before we get started, today's program is brought to you by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering hard stuff done right. And Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, Sam, obviously a big uh, couple of uh, weeks. Uh, one of the uh, most uh, newsworthy elements have, have been uh, the uh, disclosure of classified documents, the largest uh, in a decade, allegedly by a Massachusetts uh, Air National Guard Airman First Class, Jack Teixeira. Uh, there have been a series of uh, stories uh, written about what's contained in these documents, whether discord in the Russian leadership, whether South Korea's reluctance to supply weapons to Ukraine. Uh, more problematic is uh, some weapons quantities uh, that Ukraine has in its arsenal. But much of it we've known, whether the Russian leadership discord, whether the allies and how they're uh, approaching the war, and indeed the state of the Russian military. We were at the Air Warfare Symposium where the chief uh, of the U.S. Air Forces, Europe and Africa General uh, Scorch Hacker uh, told reporters, look, Ukraine started with 120 combat aircraft. It's down to 60. This was obviously before the pledges of, of new aircraft. I mean, I know that you work at an FFRDC and you guys are not commenting on classified information. Anybody who knows about classified information knows that anybody who has the clearances actually can't even read the news stories uh, re regarding this. And, and, and you guys um, do look at some very sensitive uh, information. You can't discuss it uh, at all in detail, but writ large, how should we be approaching and, and thinking about this? Obviously, any such disclosure is banned. But in this particular case, the government has been actually remarkably transparent and governments have been. So we actually have a pretty accurate and realistic picture of what's going on. Well, what I can say is that um, it's interesting to see Russian military's reaction to this. It's interesting to see Russian military commentators and Russian military telegram channels react to this. Their reaction was likewise uh, muted. One of the most important sentiments probably connecting all of their responses was that this information should be approached with caution and not all data outlined there in is necessarily actionable. And so what's interesting is that uh, the, uh, the Russian military essentially um, said, um, we're moving on from this to other more important topics. And this really was not discussed at length or in any specific detail, even across Russian telegram channels, which I, um, which I monitor quite regularly and which have been quite vocal on any type of data about Ukraine, especially any type of actionable, actionable data. So again, the reaction is rather muted. 
and um, everybody kind of took a, a deep breath and a step back from this specific event. Uh, you know, it's interesting that uh, one of the nations that really prides itself on uh, active uh, measure campaigns for disinformation and misinformation is actually uh, trying to portray this as, informa- as, as a disinformation campaign, right? This is information that can't be trusted, in part because of casualty figures uh, and the like that's contained in it. In a manner of speaking, yes. Um, let me ask you for an update uh, on uh, the war itself. Uh, Ukraine is building up for an offensive. Uh, you know, one of the most problematic elements of this was, even though it's a couple of months old, was a snapshot uh, of the Ukrainian military that showed it as being uh, tired and having lost uh, quite a lot of uh, equipment. Russia continues to grind forward uh, in Bakhmut, scorched earth, Aleppo uh, kind of um, the strategy. Give us a snapshot of where we stand right now, because this is the, the war itself has taken a little bit, um, I don't want to say a backseat, but you know, has focused on the grinding elements of, of this campaign as we wait for offensives and counteroffensives on both sides. Well, the Russian military and especially the Wagner PMC have adopted the narrative that they are close to full control of Bakhmut. Almost every day there are news items, uh, photographs, especially across Telegram and other social media that show uh, Wagner and other forces advancing house by house towards the center and trying to envelope Ukrainian forces, trying to present a narrative that Ukrainian forces are in trouble. We talked about this for weeks because this has been one of the most defining battles of the war. Uh, Russians desperately want this particular victory over Ukrainian forces to make all of their sacrifices there worthy. Uh, Ukrainians, of course, are still defending the city uh, and they're still extracting very heavy casualties on the Russian military. But uh, the Russian military's grinding approach and especially the loss of personnel, which is apparently replaced by other soldiers, is allowing them to slowly but surely grind their way across the city. So the battle is not over. The outcome has not concluded. But again, the Russian military and its affiliates are presenting this as a almost achieved victory. What would the point of this victory really be, Sam, given Bakhmut? Because it's not really a town of strategic importance, is it? It's not. When compared to Russia's losses uh, in larger cities, the way they retreated from Kiev, uh, from Kharkiv, the way they left Kherson area. But it is an area where Russian military is tying up a significant concentration of Ukrainian forces. And at this point, Russians need a victory. Any specific advance, any specific uh, victory, even a small one, would suffice for the Russian military to craft a narrative of a inevitable advance across Ukraine. And Russians think that a victory in Bakhmut may precipitate other advances across the front against the Ukrainian military, which they think will have to reposition its forces. But that's not clear. The outcome of Bakhmut uh, is not clear because, again, the battle is still ongoing and it's not over. Um, the uh, Ukrainians are preparing uh, their offensive. Um, I mean, would you be able to address what, how these disclosures potentially change uh, the calculus uh, of, of the Ukrainians at this point? I mean, is there any open... Uh, signaling by Kiev, because Kiev, you know, Ukrainian soldiers have also cast these documents uh, in, I don't want to say dismiss them, but, you know, 
I mean, I think uh, there was a Ukrainian colonel who was quoted saying, look, at this point, I don't know what I believe except what I see with my eyes <laughs> on the on the front uh, as opposed to what I read. I mean, is is there any vector change or, or noticeable um, either, either rhetoric or change in course by uh, Ukraine at all? Well, I think what's interesting is, again, a Russian reaction to all of this, and they are still anticipating a Ukrainian advance. They're still anticipating a very significant battle. They're still precipitating and uh, expecting a significant um, allocation of resources uh, by both sides to the Ukrainian advance. So they still think it's happening. Uh, whether or not it happens on schedule is a different story, but Russians are digging in and they're very concerned that Ukrainians still have certain capabilities which are better or greater than Russian capabilities, such as the Ukrainian successful use not only of small quadcopter drones and military drones, but also FPV racing drones, which have become the go-to kamikaze solution. And in, in fact, Russians are still anticipating the waves of drones to uh, basically advance um, and, uh, and precipitate any Ukrainian, um, Ukrainian advance and Ukrainian attack. So again, if you look at the Russian commentators, what they're saying openly and publicly, they're still expecting a Ukrainian advance, whether it happens on schedule or not. Um, let me, you know, you uh, mentioned uh, both uh, Wagner Group uh, as well as uh, drones. Wagner has been uh, actively recruiting, uh, and uh, you had a tweet uh, over the weekend about how much they're paying uh, for drone operators, uh, actually. Talk to us about the campaign uh, where Wagner is, obviously, they've taken very dramatic losses. They were not able, they're really not able to recruit from prisons and a lot of other places anymore. Uh, there was a video, I think you and I discussed some weeks ago, where they were in a high school trying to recruit high school students. Um, talk to us about uh, Wagner broader recruiting, uh, including for the cannon fodder, unfortunately, but also how they're trying to attract um, more tech savvy Russians. Uh, to the war on the drone side of the equation and elsewhere? Well, Wagner Group is a, is a very active user of uh, UAV and drone technology. In fact, Ukrainians have acknowledged some successful Wagner attack tactics where small Wagner squads are getting their situational information awareness from small UAVs. Uh, all sides at this point in the war recognize the importance of well-trained UAV operators as the eyes and the ears of this war. So having a well-trained UAV operator core is essential to any specific victory, whether it happens at the very tactical or at the strategic levels. Uh, months ago, Wagner opened a technology center in St. Petersburg to develop uh, different types of software and hardware for the war, including enabling the manufacturing and delivery of different types of UAVs to the front directly to their own soldiers. So it's not surprising that over the weekend, Wagner basically published a recruiting video offering a very significant salary to uh, UAV pilots and the people who can assemble FPV drones, the racing drones, which are becoming the go-to kamikaze solution. This is aimed at young people. This is aimed at tech uh, or, excuse me, at the technology savvy people. In fact, the uh, ad actually uh, says so. Um, they want to attract young um, individuals, young patriots who have the technological ability to deal with this rapidly evolving, rapidly emerging drone technology. Uh, it's unlikely what the uh, outcome is going to be. Obviously, some people will sign up 
the monetary compensation is rather significant. Uh, but it's again, 250, 250,000 rubles a month, which is pretty 240, good. 240, 240K a month in current uh, conversion. That's about 3K a month, which is, which is very good. Obviously, uh, people recruited would have to be at the front. Uh, maybe not exactly in, in the trenches, but they would have to be at the front. So there's a high level of risk involved, and that's understood. But it's not surprising that Wagner is appealing to young people who are technologically savvy and technologically enabled, especially those who are comfortable with flying and operating UAVs. Dmitry Rogozin and his SARS Wolves organization is doing the same. They're also trying to attract uh, young, uh, technologically savvy people to develop, build, and field different types of unmanned and accrued technologies as well. Um, you uh, mentioned uh, uh, Russian uh, leadership. I don't necessarily want to get into any of the disclosures, but uh, you and I have been talking for um, more than a year about sort of the horse races among uh, and squabbles among the Russian uh, leadership that are divided in the war. Some are very shrill, uh, some are less so, and who's in, who's out. Um, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, uh, the former uh, Russian president and now the deputy chairman of the Security Council, uh, was recently seen wearing a long black leather coat uh, visiting an arms factory, which um, that you and I, or at least I thought, was a little Siegfried out of uh, Get Smart. Uh, looking. Um, anyway, what do we know about sort of Russian leadership? Who's in, who's out, who's up, who's down uh, as this uh, war grinds on and the Moscow soap opera continues as we all turn Kremlinologist uh, a little bit to see who's in and who's out with uh, the the czar or uh, the, the chief dictator? Well, uh, since we mentioned Dmitry Medvedev, he has published several very viscerally uh, and critically worded statements about Ukraine. He published them on Twitter at length. Uh, they caused a lot of shock and consternation around the world. It's interesting that Medvedev is sort of stepping into the role that was previously occupied by um, Vladimir Zhirinovsky, a very outspoken, very flamboyant, uh, sort of in-your-face Russian politician with apparent no filter between his brain and his mouth. He was often saying things that other people were whispering. Uh, some of uh, what he was saying is, uh, was truly outrageous. Um, uh, other stuff he was saying was basically trying to outline Russian foreign and domestic policy and politics using a different language that was understood by the common man. And Dmitry Medvedev is adopting this approach almost. It's, uh, it's uncanny how some of the uh, phrases, some of the words he's using have almost come out of the Zhirinovsky playbook. It's unclear to me why he's doing it and why he is stepping into that specific role. Maybe he wants to be uh, the mouthpiece for uh, some of the official thinking that the Kremlin hasn't yet made vocal, uh, although none of what he says at this point is a surprise uh, in terms of official Kremlin policies and Kremlin statements. But watch that space. Watch how Dmitry Medvedev tries to create elbow room for himself as not just one of the top Russian politicians, he remains one, but also someone who kind of, in his mind, probably speaks truth to power. Uh, and and uh, uh, Zhirinovsky was uh, the Liberal uh, Democratic uh, Party group uh, uh, leader uh, in the Duma. Uh, it was neither liberal uh, nor democratic. It's important to point that out. And he died uh, of COVID uh, in April 
uh, of last year, about a year ago. Before we go, Sam, I totally forgot electronic summons, uh, right? Russia's trying to crack down on da- uh, draft dodgers. Talk to us a little bit about how they're doing that. Well, it's an important step uh, when it comes to MODs, uh, the Ministry of Defenses and the Russian government in general, ability to organize all information about its citizens. And in this case, the uh, electronic summons would be able to uh, essentially um, not just basically tie a specific individual to uh, Russia in the sense that they cannot leave once they actually receive it, but uh, there is a desire uh, across the security services to get as much information about Russian citizens as possible. Everything from geolocation data to preferences, et cetera. And so some are saying that these electronic summons, which prevent people from doing a lot of things once they are actually received in their inbox, is also an attempt to gather as much electronic data about their citizens and create the sort of digital database of where they are and what they are doing. This is, of course, a concerning development, and uh, it is probably causing a lot of headaches across Russia. A lot of people left. Russia, as uh, Moscow invaded uh, Ukraine early, uh, early in, um, in, in March last year, a lot of people left when uh, the, um, there was an announcement uh, for the mobilization in the fall of last year. Uh, but now this is going to make it difficult for people to leave and depart because uh, their digital information and their travel data and uh, everything connected to their passport and official IDs is going to be tied to the summons. So once received, uh, they can't really flee the country the way people used to before. Uh, again, an, another uh, more evidence of a digital uh, uh, right, uh, technologically advanced surveillance state, uh, or, or or rather an authoritarian state harnessing uh, technology to suppress uh, the population. Uh, Sam, honor and pleasure always having you on the program. Welcome back uh, and looking forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Vago. And a quick word from our sponsors, our coverage of the Navy League's recent Sea Air Space Conference and Trade Show was brought to you by HII, Leonardo DRS, GE Marine, a GE Aerospace Company, and Helicon Chemical. And joining us now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, good morning, and thanks so very much for joining us. Happy Monday, Bago. Happy uh, Monday uh, to you. Um, so big week uh, for hearings. Obviously, lawmakers uh, are returning from spring break. I'm going to get to that uh, in a moment because we have a very full uh, hearing schedule. But first, I want to start with the Intel leaks. We've been discussing on this program for the past many shows. Uh, and in fact, Mike Rogers, uh, the retired U.S. Navy Admiral, uh, who was director of the National Security Agency and commander of uh, uh, former commander of U.S. Cyber Command, is going to be joining us on the program tomorrow to discuss classifications and uh, security and the smart way to try to uh, improve security. Uh, But first, I want to get your take on why you think the leaks to date could actually be drivers of a broader shift in defense sentiment. You know, one of the things I think that was interesting was just a reminder about escalatory risk in this conflict. Um, the, The intelligence assessment of the near downing of a RAF rivet joint surveillance aircraft was just a reminder um, that there could be material loss of life um, by one of these incidents. I think a rivet joint usually carries, I don't know, 25 to 30 personnel on it. And had that downing occurred, it would have, to me, represented a pretty significant escalation in the conflict. Um, I don't, to me, there really wasn't a lot that was brand new in, in the assessments of where 
Ukraine is going. Um, you know, the, the notion that this war is going to extend into 2024 has been there for a while. There are obviously details on the state of Iranian of Ukrainian air defenses um, and how quickly, you know, they'll start running out of interceptors. And it just, again, points to this um, lethargic is the wrong word, but the very, very um, slow pace or the, the inability of the U.S. and European industrial base to respond to what are really urgent needs right now. And obviously, you can take some of this stuff, particularly for programs like NASAMs. You know, they operate off air-to-air missiles. Those are in inventory. But I guess, you know, what risk do you then incur if you give the Ukrainians more of these weapons? What does that do to your force posture uh, in, in Asia Pacific, particularly for the United States? Um, again, not a surprise, but I just think some of the details uh, about um, Egypt, for example, willing to sell Russia some rockets, um, you know, that just again suggests that, yes, the sanctions and export controls are having an impact, but Russia is not completely isolated and they are still able to cut deals under the table, frankly, uh, for, for systems that they need. I think some of the leaks potentially could impact defense programs. I just don't know this. I mean, I think, you know, the the, the revelation that uh, JDM and JDM ER weapons were being uh, jammed or thrown off course was kind of intriguing, you know, but I think that what, that was a deficiency that must have been known. You certainly know if, if Russia's jamming signals. Um, and there was a revelation of a satellite imaging capability called LAPIS, so I don't know, you know, did the Russians already know about that? You know, and, and had that system really been compromised by these leaks? If it had, you know, what are the adjustments that could take place? But I think, right. you know, are there some negatives too from this? Um, you know, I was just reminded when reading these reports about the allegations that, oh, the U.S. is spying on its allies. Well, we, I think everybody does that to a degree, but in the past, um, it has led to um, company countries taking stances that have impacted U.S. defense exports, most notably Brazil in 2013 when they killed uh, a Boeing F-18 buy over the Snowden leak. So you just don't know where some of that's going to go. But for me, you know, where this really goes for the defense sector in general, um, you know, it's kind of a daisy chain of thoughts, but if Ukraine continues to falter um, and or it runs out of interceptors and Russia does, I suppose, even marginally better than they've evidenced so far, you know, the idea of this war extending into 2024, let alone 2025, um, it, it poses different risks, um, obviously for Ukraine, but I think also the whole concept of, of European and Western deterrence. Um, I see the opinion polls, you know, how particularly Republicans in the United States feel about uh, aid to Ukraine. And, you know, you could make the case that uh, if there really is a pullback because of, of public frustration with this in the United States and how the war is going, that ultimately could be very positive for defense because I think, I think, you know, kind of abandoning Ukraine or significantly scaling back Ukraine because of our own frustration and how the war is going would send a, a, a horrible signal to adversaries and competitors. And that might be, you know, where, where we ultimately end up with this. The, the other, I suppose, a risk for industry is just, 
you know, is there, it does this trigger something um, that, that really changes culture and attitudes towards acquisition? I mean, it, I've written about this and I think we've talked about this, Vago. It, it just blows my mind about how long it actually takes right. to buy something and see it fielded. It's not a new problem, um, but, but it's certainly a problem that stands in stark contrast to what we in European industries, most industries around the world were able to do uh, in the 1980s and prior to that. And, and it's just, you know, is this a kind of event if, if Ukraine really does start right. to look like they're having a tougher time this year, does it galvanize the Department of Defense, other ministries of defense to, to change these cultures and attitudes, which, which have arguably been complacent? Let me uh, shift gears a little bit and ask you about uh, the debt ceiling uh, and and worries. Right, Wall Street's tendency has to, you know, sometimes is, uh, you know, Washington will resolve this. Let's not worry about it. But last time we got a debt downgrade on it. Kevin McCarthy uh, has gone up to uh, Wall Street to make the case for fiscal responsibility, uh, right, to try to highlight uh, GOP quote focus on on uh, the economy. He's saying let's go straight to debt talks. Let's not. Uh, pass a budget uh, for this year as a way to sort of kick the can down the road, but that's potentially kind of a problematic situation <laughs> to say the least. Uh, what's your sense on where we stand and how this gets resolved at this point, right? You're good at gaming well, uh, and, think, and putting odds on things. Yeah, I, I still think, you know, when we walk to the end of the cliff and look over, um, you know, as a country, uh, you know, the idea about defaulting on federal obligations, um, you know, I think when the markets really start to get wind of that, that that that's a greater possibility. It's going to shake up a lot of views. I mean, there are going to be there'll be some portion in Congress who will think that's fine, but I think the majority um, will will realize just how profoundly damaging that could be, uh, and <clears throat> both to the country, but also to their reelection prospects in 2024 and beyond. Um, I don't know, Vago. I mean, I, I think, you know, we're, we're in now, we're not quite in the days, but we're in the, in the stage where we're going to be looking at this on a week by week basis. I suppose the next question um, we'll find out is what have tax receipts been <clears throat> with April 18th, uh, the date for federal income taxes to be filed? Um, that might give us a better sense of when the X date is. But, you know, the whole idea that, you know, I personally, I don't know how much leverage McCarthy has without filing a more detailed plan about what they want to do, because a lot of things they're talking about doing are just, they're unacceptable from the Biden administration and the Democrat standpoint. As much as people talk about this um, as hearkening back to 2011 and the Budget Control Act talks, I mean, we're, we're just, we're in a, a very different political environment in the United States and a geopolitical environment. The idea that you're not going to take up any of these appropriations bills, you're just going to let this fester until, you know, we have a one-year extension of the debt ceiling suspension until May 2024, you know, that's going to leave an awful lot of things hanging at a time when we are in a profoundly different geopolitical environment. <clears throat> and I think we talked about this last week, but, you know, public opinion polls, there's one that was done by University of Chicago and AP <clears throat> in March, it showed you know, majority of Americans wanted government spending cut. But then when you run down the list of the things they wanted to see right. spending increased, it, it was diametrically opposed. Like you can't get there <clears throat> without um, 
it, it's just it's an unbridgeable chasm and so that's where i think this political reality um you know the kind of wake up and smell the coffee mode is going to come when it's fine to talk about this in very general terms but when people actually start seeing oh we're going to be cutting you know um air traffic controllers we're going to be cutting homeland security border security i mean we're going to be cutting food inspectors all these things that were detailed in the letters that were collected by representative laurel on what these cuts would actually mean you know when that starts to to register with people it becomes a very different debate and discussion uh in uh in indeed uh, it does and it's hard to imagine how you can run a government without doing some of the other budgetary elements of this uh right i mean to your to your point uh, and we'll have a more fulsome uh, discussion on that on friday when michael herson uh is going to be uh joining us uh and and dove zakheim will be back uh, as well. Let me uh, take you for a walk through the week. Obviously, it's a big week. Lawmakers uh, are back. Walk us through what you expect to hear, uh, whether from the Senate Armed Services Committee uh, or anywhere else as uh, yeah, there, lawmakers there are a kind whole of bunch the budget. Of, uh, yeah, posture hearings, Vago. For me, it's really just about the individual, um, you know, some of the major programs. I know, you know, tactical combat aircraft. Uh, there's a um, kind of DOD rotary wing hearing um that's being held by by house armed services you know there are a couple of outside events that are going to be intriguing the the 38th space symposium is taking place this week at colorado springs that should generate news on both civil and military space programs um the think tanks are back at it again that's with a whole bunch of events on the russo ukraine war atlanta council has the italian chief of defense speaking on the 19th um and this may be esoteric, but uh, Iran Army Day uh, takes place April 18th. I, I have no idea what they'll do or show off, but sometimes these <clears throat> these um, these sorts of events <clears throat> uh, reveal a, a, a particular capability that may not have been broadly appreciated. Indeed, uh, national days have a tendency of, especially for authoritarian regimes, right, get punctuated by the arrival of a new airplane, a new drone. They like showing things off. Exactly. Byron, thanks so very much. Really appreciate it. Uh, glad to have you on. Hope you have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thank you, Vago.